This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Morning, everybody. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. If you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, uh, if you'll raise your hands, our ushers will give you a free copy so you can follow along. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses, taking a close look at these, so we want you to be able to follow along. Philippians chapter 2. I am looking forward to the men's conference, men, so I hope you all can come. It was clear you're more excited about the breakfast than any of the speakers. So I may not speak, we may just eat. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the first century church in Philippi. It's God's Word. This is God's holy Word given to us this morning, inerrant, inspired has authority in our lives. It's a gift to us. What a privilege it is now to turn our attention to God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation In the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have you noticed a lot of talk about unity these days in Christian circles? It is striking how many times Paul and the other writers of the New Testament address the issue of unity and division in the church. It seems that Regardless of how a church or a group of churches are doing, the issue of conflict and division in the church is always being addressed. It seems to be always relevant. The Corinthian church, for example, was divided. This is why at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul asked the question, is Christ divided. Now, why would you ask that question to a divided church? 
is Christ divided? It's a question that is making a statement. It's a rhetorical question. Christ is not divided. Believers are united to Christ by faith. They're united to one another because they are in Christ. That's the most common description of a believer in the New Testament, being in Christ. The Spirit of Christ creates a spiritual unity among believers when they come to Christ by faith. They are in Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The spiritual reality is they are one. Christ is not divided. Why then is there division in a church? Well, it isn't because Christ is divided. For the Corinthians, it was because they were immature. Paul lays it out. They were people of the flesh. They were infants in Christ. They behaved in a human way, he said, characterized by jealousy and strife. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, a different church around the same time that he wrote this letter to the Philippians. Both were written when he was under house arrest in Rome. It's one of the, the prison letters or prison epistles. Ephesians does feel, I just skimmed through it this week, it feels very different than Philippians. It's, it just isn't as personal and intimate. Paul doesn't seem to be communicating the kind of affection he had for the Philippians. But in both letters, he addresses unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The unity the Spirit has created in the bond of peace. Doesn't it sound so much like our text today? Paul has in mind these same issues for two different churches, and he's given the same remedy. The Spirit has created this unity. You be eager to maintain it. The Spirit of Christ, through the gospel, knits us together. But we can't assume or presume on the Spirit's unity that it will survive life together in this fallen world. It, it includes opposition from outside the church, but then inside the church. There's sin, isn't there? There's disagreements, there's conflicts. So we have to be eager to maintain unity. That's what our, our text is all about. This text lays it out. This is unity for dummies right here. I've been in ministry for 38 years, and I have known many other pastors along the way, and I can assure you every pastor has a story about divisive people. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, a new family came to our church. 
I went to lunch with the man, and, and soon I found myself saying to him, I don't think this is the church for you. It wasn't because I didn't want him to be a part of the church. I just didn't think he was going to be happy here. I thought he had a very high view of his ministry and himself. And I wasn't sure we were ever going to be able to be on the same page so that he wouldn't be offended. I was trying to serve him. At the time, he said he found my comments odd, humbling, and he deeply appreciated it. And he wanted to be a part of the church more than he did before we had lunch. Became a part of the church. I ended up talking with his former pastor who said, great, great family, great guy. But if he ever disagreed with me or the other pastors, he'd go to every member in the church and tell them his disagreement. He would be divisive. Years later, that's exactly what happened. He just wasn't eager. It wasn't a priority to maintain the unity of the church. And it did, did harm to our local church. He, wasn't, he didn't have unity. The, the desire for unity. He didn't have it as a priority the same way the Apostle Paul clearly does. God is speaking to churches through these verses. One reason we're doing a series of sermons on this letter is because of the vision that Paul casts for a local church to be partners in the gospel, to have fellowship, deep and rich fellowship together for the purpose of gospel ministry. We want to follow the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And this, this letter has so much to say about how the Spirit unites us and our role in maintaining unity. It's a wonderful church. It's not like Corinth. Corinth was a mess. But this is a wonderful church, very unified, but there were seeds of division. And that's why unity just keeps coming up. So don't blame me. I'm just walking through the letter. Look, in chapter 4, Paul says, I entreat Udiah and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. These were two women who were friends of Paul's, and he publicly appeals to them. Stop arguing. Stop disagreeing. Let me tell you, pastors don't normally do that publicly. They're reluctant to do it, but he does it because he sees the seeds of division. So I think it's kind of the Lord to allow us to spend some time thinking about this important subject. So look in verse 1. He begins, so, there, so or therefore. He's connecting it to the previous verses. Remember Mike spoke from verse 27 in chapter 1 last week. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And now, unity for dummies. So, this, this, these verses, verses 1 through 4, in the Greek is one sentence. We're going to unpack it as we consider... These verses, in light of the church community, 
I'll make three points. The motivation of the community, the goal of the community, and the radical attitudes of the community. The main point is for all of us to put others above ourselves. To make them the center of our concerns. And when we do, it's going to cause a revolution in our church. Number one, the motivation of the community. Why, why be eager to maintain our unity? What's, what's our motive? Why would that be important to us? Why do we not want to be divided? Why do we care about division? Why do we not want another sad story of division in our church? Why should we make unity a priority? Why would you care? Well, here's the answers. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, verse 1, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, with these, these four clauses, Paul is spelling out motivations for unity. Even though it says if, these are certainties. These are realities. Four certainties. As surely as there is encouragement in Christ, as surely as there is comfort from love, as surely as there is participation in the Spirit, as surely as there is affection and sympathy, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is the motivation. This is the basis for his encouragement. So let's look at them. Number one, there, there's, there's an encouragement in Christ. There is encouragement in Christ. And there is comfort from love. Encouragement and comfort to be had. He, he, the, for, these, for Paul, these words mean the same thing. Encouragement, comfort. They're synonymous. Remember, there's, there's a theme of suffering that runs through this whole letter. Already in chapter 1, he's talked about his chains and that he might be executed. That theme runs all through this letter. There is opposition from outside the church. There is suffering. It's frightening. In verse 28, he says, don't be frightened because it is frightening. He started the church, they love him, but he could be executed. It's frightening. They lived during a period when it was dangerous to be a believer. There was, there was threats. They could be persecuted for their faith. They need comfort and encouragement. So there is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort from love. So maintain the unity. Many Christians today seem frightened to me. And it isn't hard to understand why. We're, we're walking through as a society, as a culture, just massive changes all around us. It's frightening. It's no longer safe to assume that we have or we will have the liberty to hold to basic biblical convictions. Some of these convictions are not popular. Some of them may become illegal. 
it was worse for the people that Paul is writing to. It was worse for him. He's in prison. It's been worse throughout church history. We're celebrating Reformation Sunday. Many people were killed for the basic things that we sang this morning, and we should give thanks to God. They were burned at the stake. So what can we do? Well, I think we should follow Paul's instructions to Timothy and pray. Pray for kings. Pray for those in high positions that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, that we can hold biblical convictions in this country. But there is this sense of foreboding among believers today, a a sense that something bad is going to happen in the future. We may be persecuted for our faith, and Paul says, don't be frightened. Verse 28, chapter 1. And now he's he's, he's teasing it out for us. There is comfort for those who suffer. There is encouragement to Christ. Remember who he's writing to. They were tempted to be frightened, and they had more reasons than us. But he said there's comfort, there's encouragement in Christ. There's love that comes because we're one. So maintain the unity. We we experience the reality of the presence of Christ even this morning, and then we share it together. And that's a strong motivation to make every effort to maintain unity in the church. You do not want to suffer alone. We need one another. A third clause in this first verse Paul says there there is, here's another reality, there is participation in the Spirit. That's the the Greek word we sometimes translate fellowship. There is participation, there is fellowship, there's, there's this common sharing of the Spirit, an experience of the real presence of God through the Spirit of Christ. It's an experience we all have individually And we have it corporately. And so maintain the unity. The Lord is present. There is fellowship in the Spirit. In the early church, believers didn't just have fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. Many many believers today have kind of lost this rich biblical understanding of fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship because it was more than watching a game together. As fun as that can be, if Tennessee's any good. It's fun to do those things, and it can actually encourage true biblical fellowship. You can be a part of the fellowship, but that's not the full meaning of it. There is a fellowship in the Spirit much more than a social activity. And these early Christians devoted themselves to it. It was a relationship. It was a relationship, a sharing of a common life through the Spirit. First John 1, John says this, that which we have seen. Remember, he saw the Lord. 
That which we have heard, he heard him proclaim truth. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's Trinitarian fellowship. The Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's rich. It's deep. Biblical fellowship is a relationship that is also a partnership. We've seen that already in chapter 1. Fellowship builds up believers, and it, it's, it's like a business partnership for advancing the gospel. It's important. It's a significant idea in this letter and in the New Testament. No wonder early Christians who were being persecuted were devoted to fellowship. And our motivation for unity comes because of this fellowship in the Spirit. This partnership that we have together. Remember this church just financially helped Paul. It was caring for him while he's in prison. Why? Fellowship. It was an expression of their Common sharing of the Spirit. And so they helped him financially. And now he's, he's deepening this definition of fellowship. It's more than a business relationship. It's more than a business partnership. It is communion in the Spirit. It's a common sharing in the Spirit. Paul was aware that disunity in the church threatened their partnership in the Spirit, their, their partnership for the advancing of the gospel. It was important. If, if it collapsed, their mission would collapse. So I would, I would just, I think, pause for a minute and ask, are you devoted to this kind of fellowship? Are you devoted to the fellowship? You know, we have opportunities to participate in all the arguing going on around us. Let's, let's just say no to arguing and let's be devoted to fellowship. Doesn't mean there's not a time to argue. But I doubt anybody needs encouragement to argue these days. <laughs> Final clause, there's affection and sympathy. What, what motivates, verse 1 there is, there is affection and sympathy. Paul's drawing their attention to that. He, he had talked about already how I long for you with the affection of Christ. Man, how could you love anybody more than that? It's something you feel. These are words that have real emotion in them. I, the love because there is affection. Why maintain the unity? Because there's, there's feelings in this church, in 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 Philippi and in this church, we have feelings for one another, don't we? We care. We love each other. They were sympathetic towards each other. They had a heart for, they weren't cold-hearted people. When Paul's in prison, they care about him. They deeply care, just like you do. And he's drawing their attention. That's why you maintain the unity. That's why you fight for it. That's why it's a priority. Don't be passive. 
One of our members, Zarita Brockman, was diagnosed with COVID in July, end of July. She went into the hospital on August 7th, and the next day she was placed on a ventilator. And we prayed that Sunday morning for Zarita, just like in our pastoral prayer, where one of the pastors leading in prayer for Zarita, our heart was going out to her. We were affected by that. The next Sunday, we interrupted the meeting, and Zach announced Zarita had come off the ventilator. And there was this wonderful, heartfelt, ah, in the congregation. It was loud. Sympathy and affection was being expressed. It was fun. She went home from the hospital on October 10th, and I saw a picture of her yesterday smiling at a birthday party. Hear that? See, you do care. You, say, you care. Over the past two months, people in the church have served her family. There's been many meals, childcare, money donated, gift cards, laundry done, kids taken to school and appointments. Lawn was maintained, ramp was built for Zarita, people visited her. Do you know what the most important thing was? The thing, in fact, I'll never forget is her friendship with Suzanne McNeil. That's what sticks out to me. Zarita, the Lord gave you an amazing friend. Because Suzanne is a woman that gets things done. <laughs> and if you're, gonna, if you're in trouble and you need to be served, she's the one you want. And the Lord gave Zarita, and it was out of love and friendship. Now, I personally, I'm afraid of Suzanne. <laughs> so when, when Paul said, don't be frightened, he wasn't referring to Suzanne. And you are wise if she sends out an email to just say, yes, ma'am, and make a meal, pull some dandelions, whatever is needed. And it, but it was striking to me, her friendship with Zarita. And we feel this way. And I would like to say, if you are new, I don't think this is a church that's hard to become a part of. Give us a little time, and we will love you too. Number two, the goal of the community. It's unity for the good of the gospel, the goal of the community. Verse two, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, that's verse one, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, sympathy... Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He loves this church the way you love your church. And, and it inspires him to appeal to them, to make unity a priority. Complete my joy designs the whole letter 
to build a stronger and deeper friendship with them. He, he started the letter thanking God with joy for their partnership. He ends the letter by telling them how he rejoiced greatly because of the way they continued their partnership with him even when he was in prison. He has this joy that comes from his friendship, and he wants it to grow more. And so he says, make my joy complete, because he knows friendships are fragile. You and I both know close friends who have been divided by pride and selfishness, by a focus on their own personal interests. So Paul appeals to them, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, be like-minded. Any disunity with his friends is going to diminish his joy. There are three things his friends need to do to complete his joy. They need to be of the same mind. The word, he uses it a lot in this letter. It's a Greek word that means to think. Be of the same think. Think the same thoughts. It means set the mind on the same things. Make, have the same priorities. Think that, that your priorities are the same as your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think that way. Be of the same mind. He's not asking them to have the same thoughts about everything. They are called to be clones mentally. He's saying, he's not saying there can't be any diversity, disagreements of opinions. He's not saying that. But he is calling them to seek the same goal with their minds. He wants them to think unity is a priority. He wants unity to be the common goal of the community because he knows how fragile churches are, friendships are. He also says, have the same love. That's what it means to have the same thought life. He's moving from his prayer. Remember his, his prayer in verses 9 through 11, where he prayed their love would abound. Now he's got a command. This is a command. The prayer expressed his awareness. They're dependent on God for love to abound. So on one hand, God is sovereign, and most importantly, God has to do a work in us for our love to abound, but he also recognized we have a responsibility there to work at this. The work of the church is faith in God working through love. So we do have work to do. We work by faith through love. And it's the love we'll see as we walk through chapter 2 that Christ displayed on the cross. The church is commanded to love as Christ loves. It's the only way to maintain the unity of the Spirit. There are seeds of division in this church. There's always seeds of division. And we've got to have this commitment to love. We're commanded to love. And finally, he says, be in full accord and of one mind. He, does it sound like he's repeating himself? He is repeating himself again and again and again. 
being in, make my joy complete, being in full accord and one mind, souls together, literally, one soul. It's a, it's a reference to people who are living in agreement with one another. There's harmony, there's different voices, but it's like when me and Zach sing, it's, there's a beautiful harmony together. <laughs> and it's powerful, the unity of believers is powerful when diverse people come together and they sing together and there's this harmony. It's beautiful, it's what the world needs now. And it's what should be our, our priority. It's a reference to their friendships. Aristotle said this, friends have one soul between them. That's where Paul got the word, commentators think. Friends' goods are common property. Friendship is equality. In the Greek culture, they valued friendship. Friends was on every night of the week. <laughs> and Paul is, is latching on to this cultural value and encouraging friendship. That's why I want you men to come to the conference on Friday and Saturday. My, I'm, pre I'm preaching the first message. It's on your friendships. The whole conference is designed. I'm having my friends come. Tony is my friend. I want you to pray I beat him in golf on Saturday. Because <laughs> one more defeat and he may not be my friend anymore. But it's talking about friendship from a biblical perspective and then cultivating friendships. Be of one mind. Literally, this is a call for us to think one things. We have, a, we have the same common goal. We, we concentrate on one thing. And then we can, our divisions can be overcome when we have that one, this is what we're doing, one goal. Doesn't mean we don't disagree, but we have one goal. We're pulling together in one direction. If you have your own personal agendas and self-interest, the, the partnership is harmed. They've got to set their minds on one thing. We have to set our mind on this common purpose, this goal of the community. What is that goal? That, that will be clearly answered in this letter. Hasn't been addressed yet, but it will be addressed. Christ the Lord is the one common subject that unites us and binds us together. It's crystal clear in this letter. When we say to live is Christ and to die is gain, when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, as we'll see in this chapter, when we confess a desire to know Christ above all things because of the surpassing value of knowing Him, we'll be of one mind. There'll be unity. We'll have a common purpose to bring Him glory. We'll worship Him. We'll serve together. The one God has created to be exalted to the highest place. We lay down our crowns. We lay down our self-interest. And we serve Him. Finally, the radical, the attitudes of the community. 
What's their attitude? What attitude do they need to reach this common goal? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Two attitudes to kill, as the Puritans would have taught, to mortify, kill, and one attitude to bring to life, vivify, put on humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition, vain conceit. This is a moral command from the Bible, from God's Word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He prohibits it. God prohibits it in the church. He prohibits us from setting our minds on our own interests, our own ambitions in the church. As long as we're believers in this community and we have an attitude that, that what matters most is self Whatever, self-fulfillment, self-advancement, we will never experience this kind of unity. You can't do it. And Paul is exposing the divisive attitudes that will bring harm to their gospel partnership. He is making a moral command for Christians. You can't do it. You can't be selfishly ambitious. It leads to being conceited. Literally conceited, it leads to empty glory. People that are motivated by selfish ambition, they polish their facade, but lack anything truly valuable spiritually inside. They're like dead men's bones. Remember, Jesus confronted people like this. The inner life, their inner life doesn't match their outer life. They, their glory is an illusion. Sherry and I, my wife Sherry and I, used to, used to go to Gatlinburg. I can no longer go without sinning, so I have stopped going. <laughs> but we used to go often. It wasn't uncommon for us to go there on our anniversary. We loved a place called the Gatlinburg Inn. It's still there. I've been for decades, but it's still there. We loved the Gatlinburg Inn. It was quaint, very quaint. It had Hollywood stars would go there back in the day. They would stay there, and they had all their pictures there. They autographed them. It had small rooms. It was very quiet. It had rocking chairs. Very un-Gatlinburg-like. It's been overshadowed by things like Ripley's World of Illusions, which is next door now. I think it went out of business, praise the Lord. <laughs> Somebody probably owns it here. I'm just kidding. Sorry. I hope you do well. I really do. It's in the middle of town. I read a little blurb on it. Uh, It's an entertainment staple on the main strip of Gatlinburg. Features a bunch of fascinating illusions. 
that have you questioning if what you're seeing is really real. The the central theme is like one thing turns to something else. I think a highlight is when there's a young Elvis that transforms into an old Elvis right before your very eyes. (laughs) Please don't leave early to head to Gatlinburg. (laughs) It's interactive, so you participate in it. You You can take your friends and disappear right before their very eyes, apparently. It's cheap, which is good. What amazed me the most was the reviews. There are people that go every year. There are people they were saying, it's a great way to spend an afternoon. I'm wondering, are we the same species of being? (laughs) An illusion. Selfishly ambitious Christians belong in a cheap Gatlinburg Museum. That's what Paul is saying. Their glory is as false, it's an illusion, as a museum that features a young Elvis turning into an old Elvis. If you're going after your own glory, it's an empty glory. It's a world of illusion. Paul is saying, don't strive for position Don't strive for money. Don't go after prestige. Don't do that. That's what the conceited person does. And they'll constantly provoke other people. They'll put down other people so they can have the highest place. And it's an illusion if they're successful. One commentator, Walter Hansen, said this, the empty glory gained by selfish ambition, stands in absolute contrast to the glory given to God when Christ, who made himself nothing and humbled himself, is exalted by God to the highest place to receive universal worship. Only when every knee bows and every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father will there be perfect unity. That's what we're striving for in this, in this day. What Paul, the reason he is so opposed to selfish ambition and conceit is because it robs God of his glory. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. This, this would have been baffling to anyone in Philippi that didn't have the same worldview as Paul. Excessive pride was condemned in their culture, but humility was seen as servitude. It's like somebody that was humble was somebody that couldn't do anything else. So they didn't value lowliness. They didn't value weakness. They saw humility as weakness. They didn't value it. It was not a priority. It wasn't celebrated. They didn't honor the humble. True greatness in first century Philippi meant overcoming that kind of shame. And then here comes Paul commanding us to be humble. He is counter-cultural. Look down in verse 8. I'm going to cheat. Verse 8, being found in human form, talking about Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
This is what Paul is after. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. It's a very different worldview. This, is, this humility is not the same as the humility despised by the Greeks. It isn't a passive inability. Or it isn't some pitiful weakness, is it? Christ chose his destiny. He made himself nothing. He became one with men and women. For a glorious purpose, he humbled himself to obey the will of God. When we embrace this, there will be a revolution in our church. And I would just like to say, this, this message is not at all meant to be corrective. This pastoral team thinks this church is filled with humble people. And as Jake Cronin was honoring the folks serving, I observed the same thing. It's an expression of humility. And we are very grateful. We see that as God's mercy operating in our church. And we give him all the glory. So let's put others instead of ourselves in the center of our concerns and have a revolution. Shall we? Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Father, I pray because we need your help. Every one of us have to battle our pride and our selfishness. And we will need mercy to overcome that and to serve others for your glory alone. But I thank you, Lord, that by the grace of God, we have access Amen. to you. And you hear our prayers. And we pray for the mercy of God that, that we as individuals and as a congregation would be transformed and would be able to advance the gospel in our community. Lord, protect us from the divisive spirit of the age and let this church be united in partnership for the gospel, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.